from Infinite Guest, this is Top Score, a conversation with composers who write music for video games. I'm Emily Reese. Composer Michael Scicciano goes by the name Skitch. His games include mobile titles and one for Nintendo DS called Hot and Cold. Now, when it comes to making games and soundtracks on smaller devices like phones and tablets and handheld video game consoles, uh, the restrictions on the size and amount of music start to sound kind of ridiculous. This is probably one of the most technical episodes ever of Top Score, so get ready to nerd out over lots of numbers. To start off, Skitch explains how he got the job to score the DS game called Hot and Cold. At GDC, his name was Miguel Nieves. He was a programmer, and I happened to play rock band with him, and that's how we made our connection. A month later, he says, hey, I'm working on this DS game at Majesco. Would you want to write some music for it? So the first part of the process was just figuring out how to set up the audio and the music for the game itself, because I wasn't local to where he was. He was up you know, in the Pennsylvania area. I was still in Florida, um, so I had no access to the development tools. And the way in which the implementation was done was that he was basically taking a MIDI file, taking individual wave files for instruments, assigning them to each of the tracks in the MIDI file at a certain pitch on the keyboard, and then compiling that into the game by using effectively what was some sort of tracker format transcoding process. <laughs> that so sounds so I, complicated. It, it, it was, because I had to basically, I had to make the individual instrument samples. I wrote all the stuff in Reason, then took the MIDI file, put it into Pro Tools so I can convert it to a MIDI type zero single channel <laughs> MIDI file. Then I had to take the WAV files, make sure they were formatted in 32, 32 kilohertz, 16-bit WAV files. The sample rate was actually lower than uh, 44.1 because it for two reasons. One, the DS's speakers probably weren't good enough to produce 44.1 accurately anyway. Okay. Okay. So it was just a space-saving measure, effectively. Oh, interesting. We're in the weeds of things that I cannot comprehend, so I appreciate oh, it, this very much. Keep going. This is great. <laughs> I would send him the 32 16-bit audio file, and then what he would do is he would take a text document I wrote that told him which tracks had which wave file at which pitch, because I could have multiple wave files on different pitches on a single track for like drums, and then he would assign them accordingly, and then transcode the audio from a 32 16-bit PCM wave file to a 32 kilohertz 4-bit APCM or ADPCM file, which would play in the DS fine and also make the file size a quarter of their size. And then that wasn't even the end of it for the limitations because he was like, okay, you have a maximum of 16 instruments, but you can only have 10 notes of polyphony at any given time because <laughs> the DS, as one of the older handhelds, had hardware voice channels. 
And so you had a, a hard limit on how many sounds you could have playing simultaneously constrained by the hardware voice channels. So by doing that, I had to write everything and never have more than 10 notes playing at any single time. Wow. That includes, I mean, any voice, right? So that means you literally couldn't have 10 more than 10 trumpets play at the same time, right? Right, right. Yeah. So, so for example, using my limitation was a three-note chord, <laughs> two voices occupied by the drums usually most of the time. I'd, I'd be careful so I wouldn't have more than three thing, more than two things playing on the drums at any time unless I needed to. And then I'd have five voices left for a bass line, for melody, counter melody, other sort of textures and such. And depending on the track, I had a little bit more leverage one way or another. You know, I couldn't do a lot of really advanced harmonies because, well, unless I had a very simple track, uh, the uh, the warehouse track that I sent your way was an example where I had a little bit more leverage because it was just the keyboard, the drums, and the vibraphone, and then a clarinet. So it was easier for me to make the keyboard part more complex because I had more voices freed up for that. make the longer podcast that people download, but then there's always a little five-minute version that broadcasts on the radio. And this is the kind of stuff that I love that for them to hear about the restrictions. And, and I just find it fascinating because it just reminds me a lot of, you know, restrictions throughout different eras in the classical uh, music history, you know, just like restrictions oh, sure. in the Baroque era or medieval or Renaissance or anything. I mean, it just, I don't Absolutely. know, I really get into that. So I appreciated that well, very well, much. Be, be, yeah, the, in that realm, of course, the easiest restriction to point to is the fact that because equal temperament wasn't standard, you had less options regarding modulation or other techniques. So your harmonic, your harmonic tension toolbox is limited because of those so limitations. So is this specific to the DS? I mean, is this always an issue this, with the, the DS? Well, uh, I don't know about a lot of other things, but I do know that the DS had different restrictions. Um, basically, the two general solutions I found was that people who were very good at tracker-style music, um, because the DS had an environment that can handle stuff like that, or people could come up with a system that was similar to that, could flourish pretty well. Um, in my case, the reason why we had to go about it this way was because I didn't have access to the developer tools. So the programmer had to deal with implementation, and that added a whole layer of complexity to the business. You mentioned another term that I'd like you to explain, tracker-style music. In the realm of, like, limitations in game audio, the one realm that I found really interesting is when we get into tracker music, or module music is another term that has gone by. music, what the file basically is, is a uh, set of instructions for what the music is going to do, and then all of the audio samples that the instructions reference. So what's nice about it is that let's say that you don't have, let's say you only have like, let's say 500 kilobytes of audio samples. 
From that point, the only thing that's going to increase the file size is how much instructions you have for playing the song itself. Okay. So for really long songs or particularly long looping files and such, it was more efficient than just a WAV file. And since it was based on instructions that were similar to but not necessarily the same as MIDI, you can have embedded loop points in it that just say, you know, after this far, jump back to this uh, this particular part in the composition and play forward. What's even more fascinating is you may think of this tracker music sort of being this ancient, archaic form of music for games, but it's really not because Unity, for example, still supports tracker music files directly in the system. And Unity is a way for people to make their own games, right? You can create games in Unity. Right. Unity being a game engine that you can make. Um, and then on the other side, there is an audio middleware program, an audio program, a program that allows you to design audio for games called uh, Wise, which has its own sort of audio file and MIDI playback engine that's similar um, that was used in games like Hegel Blast, for example. Guy Whitmore did the music for that. And the use of this system allowed them to write music and have it be of a high quality and highly, in many ways, adaptive while keeping the file size of the mobile game down to, I think, under 50 megs when it first came out, roughly, which is crazy. My memory footprint per song was like originally 500 kilobytes for everything, <laughs> and then it got reduced down. And that was when it was a that was when it was a physical DS cart. Then it got changed into a DSiWare, which was a downloadable game for the DS in the late stage of its life, which meant that my RAM footprint had to be smaller. So it got dropped down to 300 kilobytes. So I had to go back and take all my audio files and convert them to a smaller length and do other little tweaks to get my file size for each song underneath the RAM footprint for it. Wow, so, that's insane. Well, it, it is, but it's also very thrilling because I got to uh, practice a lot of both compositional techniques but also just ways of thinking about writing because on top of all those limitations, I was writing a 60-minute long soundtrack for this game using these limitations. That's a lot so, of music. It is a lot of music. Fortunately, though, because of the type of music it was, it wasn't like scoring 60 minutes of a film. You know, It wasn't sure. like score, writing 60 minutes of complex uh, music. It was mostly background music where I got to basically make sure that my themes were basically stated. I usually would have most songs having a sort of a statement of a theme and then sort of a solo section to make it flesh out. And the majority of the compositions ended, being, ended up being about three minutes long, which – once you are kind of in a real zone writing-wise, it's not that hard to get three minutes out <laughs> on a composition. Sure. You realize. <laughs> so it was it was very fascinating. That was my first game I did music for on any sort of real big scale. And it was neat to be in that experience because it taught me a lot about how to think about the writing process, but also made me appreciate on a much deeper level the realms in game audio where efficiency and optimization are key.
first of all, the name of that game is Hot and Cold, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so we got the name of the game, and we're going to come back to that. But one of the things that I want to do is find out how you got into this in the first place. What started you off as a, as a composer? I mean, was it something you started when you were a kid, or you got into it because of video games, or how how this all happened for you? Uh, yes to both of those questions. I was born in the early 80s. My dad already had a couple of game systems in the house, an Atari 7800, a ColecoVision, and we had also an Atari, I think, 400 computer. So I was already kind of around games at an early age. And by the time the NES came around, you know, that's when I started being old enough to actually remember things. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and, I, I, and I just recall playing Nintendo games a lot and being a big fan of just how about the entire experience, including the audio. Of course, I was also a fan of like music and TV shows and film, but when I got to be about 10 to 12, while I was taking piano lessons, I was already at a point when I was trying to record things like the uh, the prelude from Final Fantasy II off the Super Nintendo on a tape recorder so I could talk to my piano teacher about how to play it. And by the time I was 12 and was able to go online and it gets some basic MIDI sequencing software, I was downloading MIDI files of game music and trying to write MIDI files based on game music or later on write music that was inspired by game music for myself when I was in high school. college, I was one of those weird kids in the early 2000s that was in college studying composition to do music for games. Of course, a lot of composition folks who are not into media would be uh, not only skeptical if I wanted to do film, but be even more skeptical about games. You sure, know, either sure. Dismissing game music as not being all that good or thinking, you know, why would you want to do that? But that's where I really got to cut my teeth a lot more in terms of just Understanding more about the limitations, voice limitations in particular, is what I got fascinated with. And I got fascinated by that by doing transcription stuff of NES games for one of our ensembles at the school. Oh, fun. Because I started real – right. Because So then when I'm doing stuff for the NES, I'm like, okay, I got two pulse waves, a triangle wave, um, and then I got the noise channel and, and the PCM channel. So that's five voices total. And in many cases, a Delta PCM channel on the NES basically allowed it to play back effectively audio samples – Mostly, these were very simple, one-bit depth audio samples. When I think about it, though, Skitch, I mean, now we don't really have to deal with those restrictions. But on the other hand, there are still games that people are making that do require these kinds of restrictions. It has to just be from the love of that era, right? I would say there's sort of two forms of games that sort of demand that type of efficiency. On the one hand, you have games like Shovel Knight, um, where the composer Jake Kaufman wrote the entire thing in Famitracker, 
but that still gave him at most eight channels of audio to write all the music physically. And he did it partially because it was necessary for this game to sound the way it did. It needed to sound like a traditional NES style game. And also because he had so much experience writing for that stuff and so much passion for writing that sort of music that it was just easy for him. And on the flip side, we don't necessarily go for that extreme of efficiency, but in the mobile market, in the handheld market, especially in the downloadable content market on both of these sort of platforms, that type of efficiency is strived for mainly because if your game is too large, people aren't going to download it because they won't have enough space on their device or they have to wait till they're on Wi-Fi to download it. And some people don't want to do that. So, I mean, of course, when I said that, I guess I, I wasn't even taking into consideration the mobile market. And, and just as you said, that's a huge consideration for that. I mean, I've definitely deleted games that were too big. <laughs> I, I, I've worked on games that I know people would have deleted because they're Stop. probably too big. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's the tricky part. I mean, when it comes to actually making things more efficient, that takes a lot of demands on people from the development side, from the writing side. If I was going to write a soundtrack for a game for mobile and have it be efficient, that's something that needs to be decided fairly early on that, okay, we need to have a system that allows me to, for example, write a five-minute composition that won't end up being five megabytes, but maybe something that ends up being one megabyte or less, depending on what the system is. So it's interesting that while on the one hand in the game industry, it's almost about excesses and about trying to become the biggest, greatest thing ever, matching Hollywood's presentation with Blu-ray discs and, you know, 7.1 surround sound. And on the flip side, there's the side of the game industry that's always been there, which is we got to make as much as we can on as little as possible for different reasons. And it's those restrictions that kind of attract you to that. Absolutely. Awesome, Sketch. Thank you so much. Hey, it was fun. Uh, you have a great day, all right? Thank you for listening to Top Score from Infinite Guest. You can learn more about composer Michael Skitch Skitchiano and see a full playlist from this episode at infiniteguest.org. Top Score's production assistant is Pierce Huxtable, and Mark Hintz mixes each show. You can follow Top Score on Twitter and Facebook at Top Score Podcast. That's Top Score. I'm Emily Reese. Mm-hmm.